Hello, and welcome to the Crime Shark Podcast, and I'm your host, Baby Shark. I'd like to thank you for tuning into my first episode and the 17th recording of this because I've re-recorded it a million times. But here we go. I'm here to tell you about the murder of the Caledonia Jane Doe. Nestled in Livingston County, New York, since the little town of Caledonia, with a population of less than 5,000, based on a 2010 census, murder was not a common occurrence. For 35 years, a murdered Jane Doe haunted the community of Caledonia. There were many questions surrounding Cali Doe, which was short for the Caledonia Jane Doe. Questions like, who was she? What happened? Who killed her? And why? Wes Clements was with his father, and they were beginning work on their farm the morning of November 10, 1979. They were headed to get coffee when they noticed something in the cornfield. At first they thought it was a prank. After all, Halloween had only been a few weeks ago. The college town of Geneseo was very close by, so it wasn't completely far-fetched to think it was some kind of decoration a dummy, or even a mannequin. But, as we in this true crime community know, it's never a mannequin. Right, crime junkies? They discovered the body of a 16-year-old girl, murdered. They weren't expecting or prepared for what they found, and it's something that still haunts Wes Clements to this day. Kelly Doe was in the cornfield, just 20 yards off the road, which was Route 20. Route 20 is an east-west route. In its entirety, it stretches all the way from Newport, Oregon to Boston, Massachusetts. In New York State, it's the longest surface road. It begins near the shores of Lake Erie, just outside Buffalo, and runs through the middle of the state, all the way to Albany. Route 20 bypasses most major New York cities except for Albany. It instead takes route through the hills of Allegheny, passing through the Finger Lakes region, and then through the Leatherstocking region of central New York, and it continues east to Albany. Now, I need to interject here. I myself live in Buffalo, and my parents live just east of Syracuse, so every time we travel home to visit them, we pass the sign on the thruway that says, You are now entering the Leatherstocking region. But me, being the weirdo that I am, always say, The Leatherstocking region! And so it's just become this thing that every time we go there, my boyfriend and I have to do. Like, it's like we wait for it. We know it's coming. And he's like, guess what's coming up? And I'm like, ooh, I know. The leather stocking region. Now that I've told you unnecessary information, let's get back to the case. At first, officers thought that maybe it was a possible hit and run. But upon further investigation, they saw two gunshot wounds one in the back, and one in the head. John York was one of the first officers on the scene, and John would remain a major character throughout the course of this investigation. 
The victim, Callie Doe, was wearing pretty generic clothing for the time period. She had on a men's plaid shirt, brown corduroy pants, brown shoes. However, she was wearing a unique jacket. It was red with black stripes. It was a racing jacket. The tag on the inside read, Auto Sports Products. There were a few articles of jewelry, a necklace, and two silver keychains. Due to heavy rains the night that she was killed, most forensic evidence had been washed away. But one thing that stuck out to investigators was that Callie Doe had tan lines that hadn't faded yet, which led them to believe she either wasn't from the area or had recently spent time outside the area. If you're from New York, you know you're not getting tan lines in November, at least not outside. Through the use of palynology, which is the study of pollen, they used pollen from her clothing to determine that she had spent time in California, Arizona, Florida, or northern Mexico prior to her death. As investigators began to seek the identity of the victim, they visited many local restaurants in the area, which eventually led them to the Lima Diner. The Lima Diner is still around today, but it's under the name of the Lima Family Restaurant. Marge Bradford was serving tables at the Lima Diner on a Friday night, and she, she remembers a girl coming in with a man. She noted that the pair seemed familiar with each other, like they'd known each other for a while. They came into the restaurant sometime after the Friday fish fry dinner rush, but sometime before the bar crowd started to trickle in. Marge was able to provide information to law enforcement about what this girl looked like. She was also able to provide information about what the man she was with looked like. He was six feet tall, with brown curly hair and wire-rimmed glasses. This helped law enforcement with a composite sketch. Callie Doe had boiled ham with potatoes and corn. And this solidified that the girl that Marge saw was Callie Doe because that matched the exact contents of Callie Doe's stomach. They began circulating sketches of the suspect, the man that had been seen with Callie at the diner, and hoped that they would be able to obtain more information. If they couldn't find out who she was, maybe they could find out who he was. Now that John York had the sketches out, he began to do more research about the jacket that she was found with, since this was the most out-of-place item that she had. It wasn't typical for most people to have that jacket. He started to search for the manufacturer of the jacket. Now, this was 1979. Law enforcement didn't have the technological advances that we have today. There was no Google, so it wasn't an easy task. I can't even imagine. I wouldn't even know where to start. He finally finds the man who manufactured the jackets, and he lived in California. The man was hesitant to talk to John at first. He didn't really believe that he was who he said he was, so he requested proof of his identity, and John had to fax out identification and proof that he was a law enforcement. The man eventually tells John 
that he manufactured about a thousand of those jackets, and they were a one-time promotional item. That meant he had no way of tracking who they went to or where. It was another dead end. It was hard for the Caledonia community. The people felt bad for this young girl. Wonder why no one had reported her missing, or why no one was looking for her. Callie Doe was laid to rest at the Greenmount Cemetery in Dansville, New York. Dansville is a little over 30 miles from where her body was found. Her headstone read, Lest We Forget Unidentified Girl, November 1979. And flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. In 1984, the case takes John York to Texas. Serial killer Henry Lee Lucas admitted that he had killed Callie Doe and Texas law enforcement were able to get in touch with York and he headed to Texas to interview Lucas. During the interview, though, York begins to question whether or not Lucas had actually committed the murder. Lucas seemed to know the details of the case, but a lot of it was common knowledge based on the news reports. Lucas didn't know special details, and that stuck out to John, and he believed Lucas wasn't the murderer. But Lucas said he committed the crime with Otis Toole, another serial killer who was serving time in Florida, and Toole corroborated Lucas's claim, admitting they committed the murder together and providing investigators with similar facts. Toole said they killed Callie Doe because she talked too much. Though they doubted the sincerity of the confession, they had to question how two people in different prisons in different states were able to piece together a similar story. But Lucas had a reputation for confessing to murders he didn't commit. It is unknown how many murders he actually committed because of his false confessions. In 1985, the Dallas Times-Herald released a report that compared reliable claims of Lucas's whereabouts to crimes he had confessed to, painting a picture of the improbability that he actually committed the murders. And the other interesting thing about Lucas and Toole possibly committing this murder together is that Callie Doe was seen in the diner with only one man. Another person of interest was serial killer Christopher Wilder, also known as the Beauty Queen Killer. Without going into too much detail on Wilder, as I hope to cover him in a future episode, he was an Australian man living in the United States, specifically the Florida area, who abducted and raped at least a dozen women, eight of whom he killed, during a cross-country killing spree. The last victim that he dumped was not actually dead, and she was left in Penyan. And this is interesting because Penyan is only about 60 miles southeast from where Callie Doe was found. And Callie was similar to Wilder's other victims. She was young and vulnerable. Wilder would trick these girls into believing he was a photographer and that he could help them with their modeling career. Christopher Wilder was shot and killed in New Hampshire while law enforcement was trying to apprehend him. Because Wilder was dead, 
law enforcement had no chance to interview him and figure out if he could have been the murderer of Callie Doe. The case goes cold. In 2013, Laurel Knoll from Brooksville, Florida, was looking for a friend and former classmate, Tammy Jo Alexander. Now, it was much easier in 2013 with the internet and social media to find old friends, but yet she was unable to find anything about her friend. She had no social footprint whatsoever on the internet. She did, however, find a post by a man named Kevin who was also looking for Tammy Jo. The post gave a few details about what her current age would be, her mother and father's name, the date of birth. But then the post also said something strange. It read, She became missing in 1978 to 1979 and may have fallen into prostitution in St. Petersburg. That's a pretty weird thing to just put out there on the internet for an old friend you're looking to find. Kevin was actually Tammy Joe's high school boyfriend. Laurel reaches out to Kevin, but Kevin says the last time he saw Tammy Joe was in 1979 in Florida, and he didn't recognize the people she was with, and he was worried about her. As Laurel continues her search, she finds Tammy Joe's mother's obituary. In the obituary, it lists Tammy Joe as deceased. Laurel was unable to find any information about Tammy Joe's death. She couldn't find an obituary or any information about her cause of death. Eventually, she gets in touch with Tammy Joe's half sister, Pamela Dyson. Dyson admits that no one had heard from Tammy in a very long time. Because Tammy had frequently run away from home, they thought maybe she just ran away to find a new life. Home life for Tammy and Pamela was not good. Their mother was an addict who frequently abused prescription drugs. and She was also prone to fits of rage where she would scream and hit the girls. Pamela had spent time in both foster care and also lived with her grandmother. It came as no surprise that Tammy would want to run away from that home, from that life. Tammy and Laurel had once run away together. This wasn't like the other times where they would skip school and go to Tampa to hang out on the beach. No, this time they ran away and they hitchhiked their way to Arizona, catching rides with truckers. A trucker finally convinces them that they're too young and that this is too dangerous and they should call home. Laurel calls home. After all, she was homesick and it didn't take much convincing for her. But Tammy tells Laurel that when she called home, her mother basically said she didn't care where she was. Whether this was true or not, because maybe Tammy was lying and making up excuses not to go home, Laurel's mother buys them both a plane ticket. No one in the family had known of her whereabouts since one of Tammy's departures sometime between 1977 and 1979. However, the Hernando County Sheriff's Office had no open missing persons cases and no information about Tammy's running away. Since Barbara was no longer alive, it couldn't be confirmed 
whether she tried to file a missing persons report, although Pamela says she would be surprised if she didn't. Even with all the turmoil in the home, Tammy was the favorite child. It is possible that she may have tried to file a report, but due to Tammy's history of running away, the claim may have never been taken seriously. This is something that we see time and time again. Law enforcement doesn't want to waste resources, especially if someone has a history of running away. It is equally as hard to report an adult missing. Oftentimes, people are told that adults have the right to do what they want, and if they want it, up and leave and they can. It's not a crime. But Tammy wasn't an adult. She was only 16. Fearing the worst, Laurel and Pamela filed a missing persons report with Hernando County Sheriff's Office in August of 2014. Once the missing persons case was recorded, Tammy Jo Alexander's information went into the NAMIS system. NAMIS is the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. And as you can guess, NAMIS is a database for both the missing and persons whose bodies have been found, but identities remain unknown. Carl Koppelman, a moderator for Web Sleuths, was also a forensic artist, and in 2010, Koppelman drew Caledonia Jane Doe. Now, Web Sleuths is one of the most popular forums for the discussion of crime and cold cases. But it's more than just that. It's people like Koppelman who dedicate their skills and resources and free time to try and help solve these cases. It's people who really want to see justice for the murdered and the missing. Koppelman was drawn in by the case of the Caledonia Jane Doe. He even spent free time researching websites like classmates.com looking at pictures of students from Florida, Arizona, and California. If you remember earlier, these were the places where, because of the pollen found on her clothing, they thought Callie Doe could have been from. He checked NAMIS regularly. And then one day, he came across the missing persons report for Tammy Joe Alexander. He posted to Web Sleuths, Bingo. I think this is Callie. Koppelman emailed law enforcement in Livingston County. It took some time, but once law enforcement was able to reach out to Pamela Dyson and obtain a DNA sample, they were able to do some testing, and they had found a match. The Caledonia Jane Doe was indeed Tammy Jo Alexander. Now that they knew who Tammy was, the investigation could continue. They could look into family and friends and people who may have known about Tammy Jo's movements and whereabouts surrounding the time period of her murder. The problem was, that was 35 years ago. It's hard enough for people to remember what happened two weeks ago, let alone decades ago. Unfortunately, her identity didn't lead to many new leads. But one interesting lead was the Rainbow Prison Ministry. This was located in Georgia. The owner was a minister who often visited prisoners. 
When prisoners were released, they would come to live and work for the ministry. While we don't know how Tammy Jo ended up there, we do know that she did spend some time there. Sadly, the owners and their son have since passed, and not much information about the Rainbow Prison Ministry exists. And there isn't any kind of record of the people who spent time there, or made the people that Callie would have known from being there. So the mystery still remains. Who killed Tammy Jo Alexander? And why? Now, if you remember... Tammy Jo was buried in Greenmount Cemetery in Dansville, New York, and this is actually where my boyfriend's parents live. So I was able to, on Christmas Day, go visit her grave. Now, once they found her identity, they were able to place her name on her grave with a picture. And it's a very beautiful headstone. There's a bench in the back also dedicated to her. I left her some flowers and just spent a couple minutes there. You know, I thought about how her family was all in Florida and they obviously couldn't visit her on Christmas Day. So I just wanted to spend some time on their behalf to be there. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the murder of Tammy Jo Alexander, please contact the Livingston County Sheriff's Office at 585 243 Seven one zero zero. Again, that's five eight five two four three seven one zero zero. I'd like to thank you for listening to this first episode of the Crime Shark podcast. I'd like to give a special shout out to my friend Naptime Nancy and her new podcast. Please check her out on Twitter and be sure to give her podcast a listen. And a special shout out to my irregulars. You ladies know who you are. And also, a shout-out to our True Crime podcast. Give them a follow on Twitter and check out their podcast as well. They're awesome ladies. Thanks, and see you next time.